Welcome to 7 Seconds or Less, a podcast about the Phoenix Suns and the NBA. My name is Max McCauley, a.k.a. Podcast Boy, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host. His name is David Nash. David, how are you on this fine Friday evening in the western United States and Saturday morning in southeastern Australia? It is a cold Saturday morning here, Max, Mm. but uh, it's good to be back again, although we didn't quite get the result at the lottery that we hoped for, but... A small surprise for you, I haven't actually told you this. This is essentially our one-year episode, and we have a special guest to help us celebrate. That's perfect. I did not realize that. Our guest today for this episode, which I'm going to deem a full-on Suns post-lottery breakdown spectacular, <laughs> is uh, one of my all-time favorite guests. He's back writing for the Sepian, which he co-founded, after a stint consulting for our very own Phoenix Suns. He is the godfather of draft Twitter, and he's a fellow attorney. But don't hold that against him. It's Cole Zwicker. Cole, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. I'm a little nervous now after that introduction. So I'm not sure if I'm going to live up to these expectations, but I like you guys. Happy to be back on. I'm nervous I'm not going to live up to the expectations of a full-on Suns Post Lottery Breakdown Spectacular. <laughs> so uh, we'll see what we're going to do here. But uh, we're going to start with our only non-Suns stuff. We're going to do some uh, league-wide lottery reaction stuff. Because uh, a lot of crazy shit happened in the lottery. Yep. So we want to get into some of that. Uh, then we're going to get into Phoenix. We're going to dive into all things sixth pick. We're going to do uh, eight players we've chosen to discuss. And then we're also going to talk about possible sixth pick trades. And then we're going to finish with a team building segment. So uh, this is a packed episode. This might be two episodes. We're not sure yet. So if you're listening to this and it's only an hour long, that's because there's another one coming. <laughs> but before I move on, I swear I'll stop talking soon. We want to do one little quick disclaimer here. Yeah, Cole worked for the Phoenix Suns. And a lot of people were probably thinking, hey, we can get all the, the dirt and the, and the juice in the Phoenix Suns, but uh, that's not going to be at this podcast. Uh, Cole's a professional. Even if he knows things, he's, he's not going to just say them publicly because that's not what professionals do. Uh, he wouldn't, I mean, if I asked him, he wouldn't tell me privately either. So you're not, you're not missing out on anything. That's just it's the way it is in the business. you got to maintain confidentiality. Uh, Anything to add to that, Cole? No, that sums it up pretty well. Like I said, I'm, I signed a non-disclosure anyway, so I can't mm. divulge pretty much any kind of procedural elements, and I wouldn't anyway, because, I mean, that's, like you said, have to act professionally, but I can speak from an objective standpoint, and I can chime in on the Suns draft options, because, again, I, I don't have any inside information to that, so I'm just speaking from more of a, like an objective draft writer. So there you go. So we will get some Suns insight, at least. Looks like I prepared for the wrong pod. I, I'm very <laughs> disappointed, Max. <laughs> Who's your first question? Why did Josh Jackson skip the autograph signing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I think you covered it all off there, Max. I think anyone that was hoping for that can probably turn off now, but... But uh, if anyone is hoping for some pretty good analysis of the draft in particular, I I would stay with us for the course of possibly the two episodes, Max. All right, David, let's get started. Give us a little recap and then we'll move on to the lottery. Yeah, I don't want to get uh, too depressing here, but of course the Phoenix Suns got the sixth pick in the lottery the other day, which was, of course, the most likely outcome at 26 percent chance but working backwards the way that the the telecast essentially went we saw the lakers jump from 11 all the way to four which was a 2.8 percent chance of happening uh memphis jumped from eight to two which is a 6.3 percent chance uh max i know you know this i'm sure cole probably knows as well but i tweeted about it you know if you watch the actual lottery drawing memphis also got the number four pick which was a 7.2% chance, but that was skipped over. So they were very lucky in the lottery. New Orleans, of course, then jumped from 7 to 1, which was a 6% chance of happening. And the Knicks essentially fell from 1 to 3, which was 127 So it brought the chaos that we kind of expected with the flattening out of the odds. And just to quickly recap, the top 10, therefore, was the Pelicans, the Grizz, the Knicks, the Lakers, the Cavs, 
The Suns at six, Chicago, Atlanta, Washington, and Atlanta again at 10. So, Maxwell, through to you, what was your first reaction other than the disappointment, I suppose, of the Suns getting the sixth pick? So, my first reaction, so yeah, we'll go to that right away. I think everyone's first reaction was with the Lakers happened with them. That was just absurd. Yeah. It was terrifying. We all had nightmares of Zion in uh, purple and uh, yellow or gold or piss color, whatever the colors are. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, Cole, how much do you think the Lakers really won by moving up to number four in this draft? I think from a trade value standpoint, they did just because their pick is going to become more desirable. I'm not sure if they're going to keep number four. I know everybody says this is a three-player draft. I think that's fucking underselling Zion Williamson and Mm -hmm. grouping him in with Morant and Barrett. I would not do that. If we're going to call it any player draft, it's it's a one-player draft. I don't think that Morant and Barrett have done really much to separate them from the pack in that legitimate of fashion. Mm -hmm. But I think for the Lakers, again, moving up to four, you at least have more trade power behind that pick. Somehow, maybe RJ Barrett could fall to four. Maybe that pick's valuable. I wouldn't be shocked if the Knicks took someone like Cameron Reddish over RJ Barrett. We've seen them (laughs) have that kind of aptitude in the draft. Kevin Knox last year, I thought, went too high. So it all depends on personal workouts and stuff. There's still a lot of variables to play out. I I still think RJ goes three. But for the Lakers at four, maybe a team covets Darius Garland. Maybe the Bulls want to move up to four and the Lakers get another pick. I don't know. So I I just think it reinforces their artillery as far as like dealing for a player, probably a more established player to align with LeBron. They have to trade that pick, man. LeBron LeBron James does not want to play with Darius Garland. Are you kidding me? That is not going to go well. That's exactly what I was going to say, Max. Yeah, we saw it with the coaching search. They, they were only prepared to give three years to the coach. You know, Everything that the Lakers are doing is essentially tied to LeBron's you know, future with the Lakers. So I'd be very surprised if they don't trade the pick and agree with Cole. They essentially won from the standpoint of, I guess, going from 11 all the way to four. No, yeah, I agree. And I, I think if they, if they find themselves without... A lot of good trade options. They may just pick the best one anyway, and people might be surprised with like how not great their return is. But uh, let's move to Memphis at two. They sound pretty set on John Morant from all the reports we're hearing. Cole, where do you stand on the Conley thing? Because most people seem to lean towards trade Conley, get what you can for him. Now you're taking Morant. I'm kind of on the other side of that. I think they should keep him because I think you know, John Morant needs like a, a stable atmosphere and a mentor. He's not ready yet. Where do you stand on that? I don't think they're just going to trade Conley to trade him just because they draft Morant. I don't think that's their thought process at all. They kept Conley through the trade deadline in some part because they wanted him to mentor Jaron Jackson Mm -hmm. culturally. And I think that that's going to rub off on Morant. I think you want him to have that tutelage, someone like an Eric Bledsoe playing behind a Chris Paul early in his career. So I think that's a benefit. I mean, if they get a good return for Conley, if they say, deal him to Utah, and Utah gives them a fair return, maybe that's something they explore. I mean, mm-hmm. Conley's not long for the team as far as probably playing into like his mid-30s. Like Morant's probably going to take this job over in the next couple of years. It's like a franchise quarterback being groomed. So I th- I don't think Morant's that good, by the way, but just, mm. just an analogy. <laughs> you have friends on this podcast. <laughs> so that's really where I come down on it. It's like it, they're not in a rush to deal Conley, but if they get a good return, they do it. I think there's benefits to having him on the roster. David, what do you think? I mean, I'd just ask Cole what he thinks you know as you said we're pretty low on Morant compared to consensus I suppose Max and have covered that but we all participated in a, a little mock draft I actually had Memphis and took Culver at two and you know my explanation there is obviously he's number two on my board but also I'd keep Conley around for very similar reasons I don't think Memphis love bottoming out either but how's Morant going to go as the backup point guard, Cole, for at least one season, kind of character-wise, is he going to accept that? Is he going to accept it publicly but not be too happy about it privately? What What's your kind of read on him there? Well, first of all, it was you that took Culver in this draft. I was kind of curious on who it was. I, of course, made it, I ended up making a deal with Max after I took RJ Barrett at four. I was just kind of curious who took Culver above me, so now I know. There you go. I think Moran will be fine. His personality, like he calls himself the point guard. He has a lot of confidence, but he, he doesn't strike me as someone who just wants the job right away wants the ball all the time yeah he's used to being catered to that but I think he actually has a pretty grounded personality from what I've seen from afar so if he has to come off the bench and learn under Mike Conley I think he'll be receptive to that now if he's not starting in year two or year three then we can have a dialogue about it but I, I think right now short term I think he'll be fine coming off the bench he also correct me if I'm wrong Cole he wasn't like a, a really great prospect like at all I, I know he wasn't last year he was sort of like a fringe guy but even before that he was like barely recruited right so he probably doesn't have the same kind of puffed up 
ego as some players do. He definitely doesn't have the pedigree. He played on Zion's AAU team, but he was kind of un- underlooked. He's, he told this story at the uh, the Combine. Just He was at, this I think, this one camp, and he was kind of an ancillary player there. He was kind of warming up, and a coach saw him, and that's how this all began. Mm. So he has pretty humble beginnings. He's, he seems like a really good kid, honestly. So I think he's not someone who's like – going to come into the league with the star pedigree. They want the ball. They want to be the guy. I, I don't really see that for him. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's move to New York. Uh, New York Knicks fans obviously weren't happy because they thought they were going to get Zion. <laughs> but in my opinion, I find them now as the uh, team in the driver's seat for Anthony Davis because I think, you know, as much as you say it's not a three-player draft and as much as I agree with that, I don't know if the NBA agrees with us. It seems pretty well-sourced that the NBA is at large thinks it is a three-player draft. Agree. So if they can trade the third pick and, you know, Mitchell Robinson, Kevin Knox, Dennis Smith, uh, the two, those two Dallas picks, to me that kind of seems like now the best possible offer, assuming Tatum isn't in it because Kyrie is leaving Boston, the best possible offer for Anthony Davis. What do you think about that? Do you think that's the best or is it still the Clippers or is it Boston even without Tatum? I think you also have to include the Lakers in this. I, it depends. It's eye of the beholder thing. Mm. If Tatum's not involved, I think Tatum is viewed, even though his rapport has kind of lessened this year because he hasn't taken that dynamic leap. He wasn't very effective in the playoffs. He wasn't this, you know, his rookie year, He, I thought he got overhyped a little bit just because he came out of the gate so strong, shot over 40% from three. I think a lot of his success, honestly, he, he's a great player, but a lot of it was due to Stevens and how he was utilized defensively and everything but his perception is the strongest Mm -hmm. but for someone like David Griffin it kind of depends on what you want you can make a case that Shea Alexander is worth more than any of the Lakers prospects combined I wouldn't make that case Mm -hmm. necessarily because I I still think Lonzo can be a really effective player Ingram was good down the stretch last year it's just going to come down to what Griffin thinks I don't think there's an offer that really blows me you know know, away unless Tatum's involved I think you can really make multiple cases Mitchell Robinson showed a lot of promise as like this freak athlete at center do you want to really play him next to Zion because then you lose that spacing dynamic, that Giannis ability with Zion attacking face-ups, and you have you know Mitchell in the dunker spot. So it can go a lot of different ways. I think we're kind of going to learn a little bit about David Griffin and his team-building philosophy through what he does. David, what do you think? That's a great point at the end there by Cole because I, I was talking about Griffin a lot with the Phoenix Suns job of finally trying to get the chance to build a team from scratch because you know he was there with Kyrie, a very young Kyrie Irving, and, and that Cleveland roster, and then things kind of shifted when LeBron decided to go home. So I hadn't actually thought about that from the Pelican standpoint yet. So a good point by Cole there to test out David Griffin. But you, I think you're just obsessed with getting RJ and Zion back together in, <laughs> in New Orleans, Max. But... On that point, like, so there were a lot of reports about Zion maybe not initially being happy with the Pelicans. And listen, I don't have to listen to reports. I watched him on the NBA lottery show. He wasn't happy with, <laughs> with that result. Whisked away. He was whisked away. <laughs> That's what I heard. But listen, what's your what's your first move if you're going to try to make uh, Zion happy with where he is? I mean, if you trade for you know what reportedly one of his best friends in the world and R.J. Barrett, that's not a bad uh, you know little welcoming gift, is it? Yeah, exactly. And I think you know it's going to be easy for a team to to talk themselves into R.J. Barrett. I think, as you said, the league consensus is that it is still a three player draft. But you know, I just get the feeling the Knicks are going to somehow screw this up. Probably very similar to my thoughts on the Suns at the moment. Max, when you've got a a long history of doing so, I'm just not going to believe anything until I see it. You kind of have to prove it. So they're in a good seat, as you you say. But um, yeah, I need to see them execute this and and beat out what is going to be some pretty good offers. And uh, if Griffin plays his cards right, you know, maybe that he can leverage the Celtics into including Tatum or or the Lakers into offering more than what they were at the deadline. So uh, there's options there for sure. All right, last thing on the general NBA stuff before we move to the Phoenix Suns. Obviously, there were a lot of losers in this lottery. A lot of teams moved down three spots. I think the Suns fans weren't, or the Suns weren't the biggest loser because, I mean, just in my view, we didn't need John Moran or somebody like that. Like, we weren't going to get Zion. It really doesn't matter where we are. But some teams like Chicago, Atlanta, that are a little earlier in the rebuilds feel like bigger losers to me, Cole. After lottery night, who did you view as the biggest loser? That's a really interesting question. I came at it from a different angle as far as opportunity cost, mm. not necessarily the Cavs being at five. Like, you can make an easy case for the Cavs dropping to five. It's going to be really hard to get free agents there. They don't have a ton of tradable assets on that team. So, missing out on Zion is pretty big. Mm. But for me, I thought impact wise, I think the Hawks are going to be fine at eight and 10. I think they have a 
good core. I think there's going to be good players at eight and ten. But if they got Zion, I think that's one of like those difference making moves. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I approached it. I looked at it and it's like if the Hawks got Zion, him, Trey Young, Kevin Herter. You know, John Collins, they could have traded John Collins for maybe like a better defensive big. Like there's a lot of options that could have been there. I thought just from an opportunity cost standpoint, that's one of like the potential altering moves in the future. Because I'm obviously really high on Trey Young. So his projection moving forward, I thought that tandem would have been dynamic. So I don't necessarily think the Hawks are outright losers, but I do think they're one of the teams where the needle would have moved if they would have gotten Zion. Well, there's one thing to back on that, and then I'll go to you, David. Uh, another reason why Atlanta lost because they, you know, thought they were the smartest uh, people in the room when they traded uh, Luca for Trey, basically, and got that extra pick, and that extra pick turned into the tenth pick in this crappy draft. So, yeah, congratulations on that asset. Yep, I, I will double down on that. Uh, my notes here, you know, it's it, probably the worst possible draft to to land eight and ten when you're possibly looking to trade up for one prospect. So, uh, a little tough there. Uh, interesting to see what they do with those picks, and probably Chicago too, just as bad as Phoenix, I suppose, kind of sliding down those three spots. Particularly if you look at the guys in that range, you know, Chicago have plenty of log jams at, at the kind of four or big spots and then the combo guard you know just a glut of combo guards and and that's kind of what you're looking at in that range that they're picking in as well so they're kind of just in a a bad spot where they uh, are going to have some tough choices to make at the draft I think yeah Phoenix and Chicago are kind of similar in that they have a a quantity problem almost they have (laughs) a lot of young guys and a lot of them aren't very good but I would say Phoenix is our, our better overall than Chicago so at least we have that going for us uh, all right, let's move on to Phoenix then. Uh, Cole, before we get into them specifically, we like to ask all the guests on our draft episodes kind of about their overall draft philosophies. Uh, I mean, I could probably you know make your answer for you because I've listened to you for so long. <laughs> for people who haven't listened to you as much, what, what do you think differentiates you from other uh, draft evaluators? I think, honestly, a lot of it's just cutting through all the bullshit and not being phased by other people's opinions, not buying into groupthink, and not being pressured by you know, even like late season bias, like right now with the combine, there's a lot of people that are down on Grant Williams because he didn't shoot the ball well at the combine. It's like, well, those are two games. Like that's a two game sample. And Mm -hmm. you have to actually look at things that go into that. Like the inputs, he was confident shooting NBA threes. I think that's really big. Like he had two in and out misses. So for me, I guess in totality, I'm looking for good basketball players. I'm looking for guys who apply skill, IQ especially, and athleticism functionally to the floor. And I, I don't get as caught up in physical tools, positional size. Those are important qualities. Mm-hmm. But if you lack the ability to apply that to the floor, yeah. I don't think it's worth that much. So I really, really favor the high IQ guys and, and like the outlier skill guys. I think that's kind of what separates me, I guess. Yeah, I think functional athleticism, and I, I quoted it earlier this week from you, I think it's like the best thing you ever come up with. <laughs> it's just so true. People get so obsessed with athleticism. Guys like Stromile, Swifter, you know. I, just, I don't know why that's the first one that came to my mind, but... uh <laughs> Guys who are just super athletic, but like it doesn't translate to literally anything on the basketball court. Josh Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> the weird thing about Josh Jackson is it it does translate in like little tiny spurts. Yeah, but he's just such a bad effing decision maker that it doesn't really matter. Exactly right. He showed better capability in college, but it still wasn't high level decision making. He's just he had pretty good tendencies as a playmaker and I think we kind of overvalued that a little bit in the draft process I wasn't someone who bought into him as like a Kawhi Leonard clone but I do think he hasn't made the requisite decisions in the league especially for his role that's another thing is adopting and getting a guy who's willing to play a role on a team and play within the confines of that role and that's something that Josh Jackson's always struggled with because I think he has that pedigree like we talked about earlier in the podcast of being a star and he's not that good and that's a problem Mm -hmm. yep Uh, just to jump on the back there Max character and and feel are probably two of the biggest things that I've got out of following Cole and, and having conversations with him about prospects. And I think that's going to come out in the way that I look at a lot of these players in this draft, uh, particularly versus someone like Josh Jackson. Yeah, no, I think both of us have been partially influenced by Cole for sure, but also just our own trials and tribulations. Just, man, just go for the good basketball players. If they're not good at basketball, they're probably not going to be good at basketball later. This isn't that hard. <laughs> yep. Okay, let's start with our first set, which we're kind of calling the guards and the smaller wings here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Smalls, as David likes to put it. It's going to be Darius Garland, Kobe White, Jarrett Culver, and Cam Reddish. Cole, do you mind running through where each of those guys are for you? 
with the brief explanation. And I understand that I just lightning speed, rattle that off so I can go slower if you need it. No, it's fine. I haven't really ironed out specific orders or whatnot. I'm a little higher in Culver than consensus. I have him in my second tier, really a third tier because I have Zion one and I have nobody in tier two. <laughs> and then I have like five or six guys probably end up in tier three. Mm-hmm. Some of those are fit de- dependent. For the case of the Suns, like I think Culver's a great fit. We can get into that later. But I'm a little higher on Culver. Garland, I like the idea of, I think that people are chasing his abilities too much. We've seen people watch Damian Lillard in the playoffs, and this is one of the biggest dangerous biases you can have in the draft, is you watch somebody in the draft, or you watch somebody perform in the playoffs, and you're like, we need that now. So you look at Darius Garland, he can shoot from 30 feet, he's got excellent footwork, has awesome dribble rhythm as far as getting into his jump shot, very quick release. Uh, He has some pick and roll ability, even though it's mostly been confined to hitting the dive man playmaking wise we only got four games of this guy against low-level competition outside of usc yeah so it's tough but i think the dangerous thing is chasing someone like that mm-hmm. when it's a skill set that requires more like damian Lillard's an incredible downhill athlete he's strong he can shoot from 30 he has the most versatile jump shot in the league for guards in my opinion he can shoot with backward momentum you know he can shoot fadeaways from 30 feet 35 feet and he can threaten from the mid-range garland doesn't bring all of that to the table so i, I just think as an overall encompassing point of him. I don't like chasing skills that you realize are valuable. Like Trey Young's left-handed skip passes. Like John Morant throws those, but he's left-hand dominant. He's actually better at left-hand passes than right-hand. So I think you have to give more context. There's so many pros and cons of looking at these prospects, you know, while the playoffs are going on at the same time. And I think that is one of the dangerous things that we can fall into. But what about Kobe White and Cam Reddish, Cole? Yeah, I think, again, Reddish is a little fit dependent. If you think of him as like a point guard, like a lot of people said coming into college and like this Tracy McGrady fucking ridiculous ridiculous comparison that I hate. It's just like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, back up. Who the hell compared him to Tracy? I'm not going to name names, but just Google it or search it on Twitter. I swear to God, it's, it was wild shit. Like actually like credible websites were saying this. He's not even like a fraction of the athlete, but I I think if you put him in a role, like an Otto Porter junior role, if he can be on like the Atlanta Hawks, for example, where Trey's doing the playmaking, you have Herder as a secondary and you have Reddish as like a tertiary floor spacer where you can play team defense. I like him in that role. If he was on the right team, I could have him in that second tier along with Culver, RJ, those guys. But if he's on the wrong fit, I I don't like him nearly as much. So it's a really tentative assessment there. Kobe White, I think I'm a little lower on, but he's right in the range of Garland to me. Like they're, they aren't that dissimilar. Mm -hmm. I don't really buy Kobe White's size being that impactful. Like his, he doesn't have great length. I think people overestimate all the time defense in college. You're like, oh, Kobe White's a good college defender. Yeah. Well, it doesn't really mean shit necessarily for the pros. Mm. Like, he's not strong. He's not a crazy athlete. He doesn't have crazy length. So, like, what is he really going to be? He's probably going to be a negative. He has to get it back on offense at the highest levels of play. I like his pull-up ability. I think he's got the most versatile shot out of these guys. I think Garland's the best pull-up shooter for lead guards and probably the best overall shooter. But I think Kobe White's shot is a little bit more versatile. Playmaking. We don't really know. He, he's not a high-level pick-and-roll passer yet. He, he doesn't have great burst. I mean, his downhill speed is good. He doesn't have great pop off of one foot around the basket as a finisher. I love the way he pushes the ball in transition, though. That's one thing. Yeah. I think it's going to have a lot of value to teams. Yeah, just to jump on that, I think he's going to be like a good player. I think he projects like a pretty fun sixth man. But, man, if we're talking about him anywhere near the top five, it's like, what the hell was this draft? It kind of feels like... We're evaluating a bunch of guys who should be, you know, if in a, in a normal draft, like at 14, you're like super pumped. Like, oh, I'm going to get this good role player at 14. <laughs> or I'm going to get this great, you know, high upside guy who might fail like Darius Garland with awesome skills, but I'm getting him at 14. What a steal. But this is the guys we're talking about like five and six. It's a, such a weak draft. <laughs> it's also why like I'm dodging questions a little bit here because I don't have strong stances. Like last year I was like, bang, 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 like Luca, Jaron, Trey, Wendell, Aiton. You could go down the line and be like, these guys, I would feel comfortable taking there. Mm-hmm. This draft. I start like even at two I'm like mm, I'd rather trade the pick three I'd rather trade the pick and you get to like five through 17 it's like I mean it depends on fit I mean that's just an honest answer yep. I'll throw to my first couple of did you know facts here because uh, we're not going to do a, a full segment on this one Max but I'm sure you guys know this but uh, Garland of course left the combine and, and was rumored to uh, have a promise the Suns were linked in those and there's been people that have come out in support of that and, and also some Suns people that have come out denying that and Kobe just escaped the negative 
uh, wingspan, and and by just I mean you know by an inch essentially uh, with his without shoes measurement versus his six five wingspan. So that touches a little bit on what Cole was talking before. But I won't let you dodge this question, Cole. If we we've talked about both of these guys on previous pods before, and how neither of them are, are kind of natural point guards, uh, we'll go to you first, and then Max can maybe back it up with his thoughts. But if you had to bet on one of Garland or White becoming kind of a more natural floor general, which is something that I definitely like to see in my point guards uh, on my team and, and definitely next to Devin Booker. Which one would you be betting on going forward? I think I would bet on Garland just because I believe in his handle more. Yep. Kobe White's handle is a bit more divisive. And I think a lot of that's due to his body construction. He's got kind of a longer torso and shorter arms, so he has a high dribble at times. Mm-hmm. He's got to work on get, keeping the ball low, and that's something that Garland does a really good job of. He's very shifty off the bounce. I trust his pull-up a little bit more again from deeper range and I really do feel like he can really space the floor off the ball but Kobe can do that too at a really high level Kobe's awesome on catch and shoots he wasn't nearly as good on pull-ups this year which is kind of interesting but I think I would bet on Garland and offer a slight cop out and saying that I think Garland's gonna have better trade value moving forward so that would probably move it in his direction but I would say Garland I agree with Cole only thing I'll add on that is that uh also Garland's shooting ability will make it easier for him to be a floor general because people have to play up on him more more space yep and then the other thing I'll say is that uh you mentioned the promises i really wish we could just ban the word promise from the draft lexicon i'm so sick of it man it's so (laughs) annoying we don't know who promised who it's just speculation it doesn't matter i just wish we stopped talking about it just touching on that one thought i actually had is whether you know agents are essentially using this to their benefit now yeah i wouldn't be surprised if if Garland or, you know, Kobe White, who we've just seen leave the combine as well, I think don't have promises at all. And it's all kind of leverage plays here to play a little bit of games. That's purely off the top of my head uh, theory with no real sourcing behind it or anything like that. But Why the hell not? It's all bullshit anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I just, if you look at the teams in that range, it's really, it's really hard to see. I really don't think the Lakers would have promised. I don't think the Suns would have promised because they're both more likely to trade their pick than anything. Chicago's one, I suppose, but even then, I'm I'm not too sure. So yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that one, Max. I think there's actually credence to that, by the way. I th- I think you're right, David. I, I think that that's a real thing that happens. Agents use that kind of leverage all the time. Well, why wouldn't they? Think about it. There's no accountability at all. Yep. Like what? No one's like after the draft. There wasn't a real promise. Like oh, you made a false promise. You're going to be <laughs> docked. Nothing. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. Two things. Send all prospects to the combine to at least do measurements. I'm sick and tired of the fact that that (laughs) doesn't happen. And then if you go to the combine, uh, you can't leave. Lock the doors. (laughs) <laughs> this is a draconian con system. <laughs> David's a draconian guy, man. I'll show you has a crazy place. <laughs> yeah, so let's move to Culver. What do you think about Culver's measurements? I'm, I'm, we're going to really dive into how much I hate measurements later with Brandon Clark. But Culver's measurements were a little under what we expected. There were a lot of rumors about him all season about how he's like way taller than everybody thought. Like, <laughs> I think at one point so, like, he was basically like seven feet tall. But uh, <laughs> he measured it, what was it, like seven, six, seven, basically? Yeah. Uh, what do you think about his measurements, Cole? Does it affect you at all? No, not really, honestly. Like, I think he plays bigger than his size anyway. Mm-hmm. You watch him against the best competition. I always look at that. It's not just about your size. It's about do you play bigger? De'Anthony Melton... I mean, you guys have watched him as well. Like, he plays bigger than 6'3". Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Jared Culver plays bigger than 6'7". I think he weighed in at, like, 195 or something. Yep. That was kind of surprising. He does not look 195 to me. Like, I think Nikhil Alexander-Walker was, like, 13 pounds heavier than him. And they do not play like that. So that was kind of surprising to me. I think Culver u- utilizes his strength, the strength that he has, the functional strength, well. So it didn't really bother me. Like, I don't need, like, a 7-2 wingspan if you don't use it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Culver uses his length well enough. So his, his athleticism, we can see that on the floor. We don't need combine testing to see that he has issues with the first step. He doesn't have, like, crazy bursts, but he's really good at finding driving lanes. He's really crafty as far as his steps. Mm-hmm. And all of that stuff is more of a basketball thing than it is a workout thing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I tweeted earlier that, you know, they're basically identical to Karis Levert which, you know, many people have already compared his game to to Karras, and I think the measurements being essentially identical kind of helps that comparison for sure. The other interesting one was Draft Express tweeted out the comp to D'Angelo Russell in terms of their measurements, which was pretty much identical as well, and I just found that interesting, Max, because, you know, a lot of people, uh, including us earlier on in the season, were were pretty interested in the fit of D'Angelo 
and Booker together in in the backcourt. And I think if you, you know, I'm very high on Culver, so I'm obviously a little bit biased, but I think if you combine that measurement fit with Booker in the backcourt uh, versus, I guess, what Culver brings to the table that D'Angelo wasn't going to bring, it's a really intriguing fit as a backcourt going forward. If you're in on Devin Booker being a you know primary playmaker, of course. I did not hear that or, or know that, and that, that kind of surprises me. This shows you why measurements are so pointless, right? Yep. Watch Jared Culver play and watch D'Angelo Russell play. <laughs> they are not. They don't play like they're the same measurement. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. I want to get into one thing, Cole. Last thing on Culver and David, you can come out on this also. Mm-hmm. So I don't watch him obviously as much as you do, Cole, and maybe not even as much as David has now. I watched a decent amount of him, and then I watched, obviously, a ton of him in the tournament because he was in the late games, and you you watch all the late tournament games. Culver's decision-making in the latter few games of the tournament I would characterize as less than what you'd hope for. And Now, I don't know if that's just a young guy in a really big spot getting a little bit nervous, and, and normally his decision-making is better. From what I've seen from him in earlier games, it was usually better. But were there any traces of that sort of, like, I don't know, rush bad decisions uh, that he made sort of later in those big moments? Were, were there traces of that earlier on? There were against more athletic teams. That's always been something that has plagued him over the course of this season. He's in a primary role where he, he does have good players on his team. Like, that's like, Moretti's awesome. They have a good supporting cast, but they don't have a good supporting creation. Like, he has to do all of the self-creation himself, basically. When they need a basket, mm-hmm. you know, they run some mid-post ISO for him sometimes, but a lot of times he gets the ball from a standstill at the top of the key three-point line extended, he has to make a play. And I think he presses sometimes, and he settles. I think that's the thing that I noticed from him down the stretch of this caller season is that he settled too much like there were driving lanes and he would just pull up obviously Hunter gave him some problems because Hunter's the 7-2 wingspan he moves really well laterally but but I do think in a different role you're going to see that even out like the way I like to look at it as if you swap Culver and RJ Barrett yes I think you would see like a really high level decision maker with Culver playing next to Zion playing next to that kind of talent just that's just my opinion if you put Mm -hmm. if you put him in that kind of role he would be pass first you would see a lot of the pick and roll anticipation that he has because he's a really good passer as far as seeing the floor for a wing kind of player but I do think he gets pressed when he has to do too much and I, I don't think he has the kind of athleticism where he can just draw two defenders he can blow past the first guy and see easy passing lanes he's getting caught a lot in his drives and I think that's why you see some of the bad decision making 100% agree I I love that that comparison to RJ there that Cole's thrown at the end there Max and probably all I'd piggyback on the top there is he had a 32.2% usage this year at Texas Tech and and as Cole said was very much the primary option Uh, if you go and read Jackson Frank's article on Culver from earlier in the year you know he outlines the fact that whenever Texas Tech were in a sticky situation the ball was thrown to Culver to I guess get them out of it and Mm -hmm. you know that's not going to be his role in the NBA I've had a lot of people as they learn that Culver's number two on my board kind of come at me with both his you know assist to turnover ratio which isn't great from last year and also his shooting percentages which you know the shot is very much a work in progress but yeah I think Cole touched on it beautifully there is just he's not going to be in that role in the NBA and you don't want him to be in that role and I think you know if anything I take the positive from it it's going to be a a great learning experience for him but once he drops down into the NBA with better talent around him and in a more secondary playmaker type role I just think he's going to flourish yeah I I don't disagree with you guys I really like Culver I just I mean I don't see him as like a star but listen there's nobody in this draft who's going to be a star besides Zion in all likelihood so whatever let's just take him I think if you add the defense on top of it, that's where you kind of get into, you know, playoff star type potential for Culver. And that's why I'm so high on him. So Yeah, like a draft Twitter star? Yeah, let's go with that. Let's go with that. But <laughs> we'll get Cole's thoughts on this quickly. What do you think, you know, because I've got pretty strong thoughts on this, Cole, and we've pretty much outlined them already on the pod and on Twitter. Because, you know, people are going to come with us, you know, too many wings on the team, blah, 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 sort of stuff for drafting Culver. But, you know, what does a Booker, Culver, Mikael Bridges kind of backcourt look like on the defensive side of things? My stance all along, I've said this on your guys' podcast before, the Suns need another playmaker on the perimeter. It's not necessarily a point guard. I think people have fixated too much on the idea of a point guard. What they need is just somebody else who can handle the ball. If that's a wing, that's fine. Because I think Booker, mm-hmm. he's, he's going to be the best player with the ball, no matter who you get, probably. And especially in this draft, he's going to be better than Morant. He's better than any primary you're going to get. Yeah. I, so I would try to add defense because Booker's 6'6". Like, I think if he really exerts energy on defense, he could get to maybe slightly below league average for his position. 
I, I think that's within his range of outcomes because he's a really competitive guy. Yep. If you put Culver next to him, McHale there, you maintain that positional size. If you're building towards creating a playoff team that wins, you're going to have to eventually surround you know your fixture players with defensive-oriented players. So I think Culver, in theory, who knows if he reaches this because, again, a lot of, of his projection is shot variance. Yeah. But I, I am pretty damn high on his defensive ability. I think he's got quick feet. I think he plays bigger than his size. I think his frame, he's going to be able to add strengths. So I, so I love his ability to defend different types of guys. McHale, as you guys know, struggles a lot with strength. He can get dislodged in space. Mm-hmm. I think Culver's going to be a better on-ball defender than McHale in certain ways. McHale might be the better overall defender because he's just so good at using his length. He's so smart as a team defender. Yeah. But I actually, I love the fit. I think it accomplishes what you are trying to get via another perimeter piece who plays defense and ideally can space off the ball and then dribble pass shoot. I don't know if you can tailor make a better fit than that if he materializes. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm with you. That's, uh, that sounds all good to me. I, I want to ask you one question. <laughs> so you mentioned the Booker thing because I, I think this is interesting. The Booker defense question to me has been, it's been like the number one thing I probably thought about for the Suns in the past three years. Because obviously he's been terrible, but I've always just had this thought in the back of my mind that he could be not totally terrible at some point. And I feel like we finally saw it for the first time, not in the second stretch of the Suns when they were really good, when they beat Milwaukee and they beat uh, Golden State and the Lakers, but the earlier one when they beat Boston, New York, and they barely lost to Washington. Yep. During that stretch, I thought I saw a little bit of it. You actually followed the Suns pretty closely this season. Did you see any of that? I did, honestly. I think that was the most fun I had watching the Suns this year. Mm-hmm. I just remember the Boston game and all the length flying around. So Oubre, they were switching a ton. And like that's what I like. You can do some of that with Booker because I think he's going to compete. Yep. I think his off-ball defense at times, he can really lapse. He fucks up a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I think some of that's the environment. I think some of that's the, the culture, though. Some of that's like if you are losing every night, what's the real incentive to do that? Yep. I think if you're winning and how much Booker wants to win, I think you just have to bet on that. And I, I'm just betting on the positional size. It's 6'6". He's not 6'1 or 6'2", a buck eight. I think he can be good enough to survive on that end. And then he, of course, brings that optimal offensive value in the right role. One more thing. You mentioned Oubre. Got to get your take on uh, Kelly Oubre because <laughs> because the Suns fans have been debating this. This is probably the number one thing they're debating, right, David? Like, yes. how much money would you pay for Kelly Oubre? Yeah, I mean, the draft's obviously taken stuff over at the moment. But, yeah, I mean, ever since the season has ended, that's the question on everyone's lips, I think. So, yeah, I think we should... Uh, I don't know what question you were going to throw at Cole there, but probably what you'd be prepared to pay Ubre. I'm guessing, Max. Yeah, just basically, do you think Ubre is the right guy for the Suns to commit money to? And then how much money would you commit to him? I don't. I don't think he's the right guy. I think you need better decision-making. Mm. If you're really trying to build a winning team, Ubre gets buckets, and I think at times he's necessary on, on the roster, especially last year. Like He was a guy... At times, you just needed that aggression. Yeah. You needed somebody who would get a bucket. Like, Mikhail's not really wired that way. Mm-hmm. And Ubre can do that. But I just don't trust his decision-making on either side of the floor. Like, he can switch. Yeah, he has the mobility. He has the length. But I think he's a kind of a peak example. I, I love his handle. I love his ability to create an ISO. I just don't know if he does enough in a team construct. I don't think he's good enough to be a star or efficient enough to be a star. And I think if you're building a high-level playoff team, and that's the I, that's the idealistic goal, you're going to need better decision-making when, when you get to those highest levels of play. So I don't think he's that caliber of player. Now, would I pay him? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, as a rotation wing, I think it could be valuable. Uh, the question is how much, like 10 million, 11 million a year. I, I would be okay with that. Mm-hmm. That'd be fine. If we start going into like 15, 16, like that higher teens area, I, I don't know if it's going to go that far. I really don't know what his market is and how he's gauged, but I, I wouldn't go that high. I would view him more as a rotation wing, but I don't know if I would rely on him necessarily as like a core foundational piece. Yeah, that makes sense. Real quick, then well, I promise we'll move on. <laughs> would you rather have TJ Warren or Kelly Oubre on the Suns roster? Oh, God. That's a really good question. Um, I think I think I would rather have Kelly Oubre just because you're getting more defense. Yeah. And TJ is like he's good as a six man off the bench, and he, the way he shot the ball last year was fantastic. Mm. But again, this goes to like operating within the confines of your core. You have to have defense somewhere, and why I don't, I don't love Oubre's decision making. Again, he can at least guard multiple positions, and I don't think Warren can do that. Yeah, and he randomly locked down James Harden in one game late in the season, which was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think the fact that Cole, you know, saw that as a bit of a line ball decision, and we know that TJ makes around 
10, 11, 12 million, depending on what year it is, because the money's a bit staggered there. I guess that all justifies why Cole is around that 11 or 12 million mark for Kelly. So that's interesting, Max, I think. Yeah, Cole, congratulations. Your thinking is consistent. (laughs) Nicest thing anybody's ever said about me. All right, David, do you have anything else on uh, this group of guys? Or should no, we... I think, you know, Reddish was the only other guy in this group, but, you know, Cole at the top there really covered off the two main points with him. I think it really depends what team he gets drafted by. I don't think that team should be the Phoenix Suns. Um, and, you know, his optimal role in the NBA is, is definitely more that kind of third-tier player, and, you know, character-wise, it just depends whether he buys into that. I wouldn't be overly disappointed either as the Suns or one of the teams in that area with drafting him because as you know EDM Max EDM but (laughs) other than that I think we can probably move on to our next segment here all right so a lot of Suns fans have been talking about trading the pick including ourselves it's (laughs) one of the more attractive options given the quality of players in this draft I have a couple takes on this the first one I want to get your guys opinion on we'll start with Cole my first initial take uh, on this before I looked at all the players in the league was that the sixth pick in this draft might actually be easier to trade than the normal sixth pick. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of times teams are hesitant to trade the sixth overall pick in a draft because you kind of expect to get a good player with the sixth overall pick. Mm-hmm. But because this, this draft is so weak compared to other drafts, I, my initial take was like, hey, maybe it actually might be easier to trade this because you're more willing to trade it for like a regular old starter than you would be in a normal draft. Does that make sense at all? That rationale definitely makes sense to me. Of course, the opposite side of the coin is the demand might not be as high because it's a bad draft, but I think that moving the pick, I think the Suns are definitely more amenable to moving the pick than, say, <laughs> last draft. If they ended up, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if they ended up six in the, in the last draft, I don't think they moved that pick. There's definitely good options there for them. Maybe Mo Bamba, Wendell Carter, Shea Alexander was, was a dynamic pick there. But it just comes down to finding the right kind of trade partner and finding the right kind of value. Like, is a six pick worth a capable starter? Is it worth Drew Holiday, who's not, who's beyond that? He's like a very, very high level starter, not maybe a star, but an ideal fit next to Devin Booker. I know that's probably where we're going to go at some point with this trade talk. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the evaluation of this pick is because we can kind of read into it's all about perception. The draft. For the NBA, it's all about perception relative to what other teams are thinking. So if they think it's a three-player draft and they think RJ is this valuable, that's fine. Do they think that Garland's this valuable if he falls to six? I don't know. I need more intel. Yeah, that's interesting. I I keep flip-flopping on this, Max. I think, you know, we, for a long time, were thinking, you know, it's either Zion or trade the pick. But, you know, they could trade back and save themselves, you know, which we'll get into in part two of of this episode series with, you know, the salary cap and and how things are looking. They can save themselves two, three million dollars by trading back into the late lotto from six. Uh, They could trade out completely for a player, as we've suspected, and as you and Cole have both mentioned. But I also go the other way sometimes and, and wouldn't completely rule out them taking someone at six and then even taking someone at 32 or trading up from 32. I just think with the situation with Igor and, and Jones clearing house, I, I could see him doing a similar thing where he clears house with, you know, TJ, Jackson, maybe even a Kobo and, and Melton as much as we would hate that, Max, and brings in two older rookies that he feels are uh, more his style of player and guys that are going to be able to compete straight away. So, yeah, I keep flip-flopping on this one. I, I'm interested to see what you've got in terms of hypotheticals of what we can do with this pick. So the reason why I foreshadowed the fact that uh, I, I didn't necessarily think that my initial take was correct was because I looked around the league over the past couple of days to try to find these trades, mm-hmm. and the entire league is going to free agency <laughs> next summer. <laughs> I don't know if you guys realize that or not. Like, it's really hard to come up with trades because there were so many one-year deals last year yep. that I think a third of the league, this is actual numbers, is in free agency next year. Mm-hmm. And then you know, another third plus is just untradeable. So it's really difficult to find trades that make sense. So here's, I have my best ones here. So I'm going to start with my rapid fires for you guys to assess. And then we'll get into the big ones. Yep. First one. Oh, by the way, all my rapid fires involve Josh Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> all four of them. Uh, first one, the number six pick and Josh Jackson for DeMontis Sabonis and the 18th pick. Cole, what do you think about that? As far as what I do it if I was the Suns or just assessing the overall trade? Focus more on the Suns, but you can go into the ladder if you want. I would probably do it if I was the Suns. I think DeMontis Sabonis is like a low-level starter. Very, I mean, he's definitely a high-level sixth-man kind of third big at, at his worst. I'm not sure if he's the ideal fit next to Aiton. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, you have to look at the benefit of trading Josh Jackson. What is the return going to be in that? 
in isolation, which is not high. So I, I would definitely consider it. I, I'm kind of interested to hear the rest of your thoughts before I, or the rest of your ideas before I com- commit fully, but it's definitely something I would entertain. They don't get much better. Uh, David, what you got? Yeah, I'd probably agree with Cole on that. And I'd probably the only thing that I would add would just be that we have to be more realistic about these things. And I think in a lot of these conversations amongst Sun's Twitter, we're always looking for that idealistic fit uh, for the next five years. But, you know, the Suns are really starting from almost ground zero again here and, and should be building up. And as Cole said, Sabonis is a, a fringe starter in the league and a good one at that. So even though the fit with Aiton in particular isn't ideal, I think this team should be about adding more NBA players to the roster mm-hmm. and perhaps getting rid of the ones that aren't NBA players, Max. So yeah, I think I would do it from that aspect of you're essentially uh, a plus two by bringing in Sabonis. Bonus and, and moving Jackson out. And you could probably still get a good player with that 18th pick too. We probably should have started with this because I'm all four of these have Josh Jackson in them. I view Josh Jackson right now as because you owe him $7 million next year and then if you pick up his option, you owe him 8.9 after. Mm-hmm. I think the value you get for trading Josh Jackson is not having Josh Jackson's contract on your roster anymore. Like that, yep. That's the value you get for trading him. He's basically that. What do you, Cole, do you agree with that? Yes. He's a below-the-line asset right now like you're taking on water with him he's more of a financial liability than he is an asset to another team a lot of people look at it and say well he's still so young he's on a rookie scale contract mm-hmm. rookie scale contracts for upper tier picks are expensive yep. I mean, we see that with markel fultz like the sixers traded markel fultz i mean some of that is team fit obviously but they're not going to be paying markel like nine million dollars next year they're just not going to do it so i think you have to factor in two facets the first is that josh jackson hasn't shown the ability to contribute to winning basketball yet and he's making a lot of money that you can probably get a replacement level player for the minimum that can do what he does. Well, the funny thing, Cole, is, is uh, when I mentioned this on Twitter, the whole Josh's value is just getting rid of his contract thing, both Spike Eskin uh, and then also Mark Whittington, who you know obviously very well. I do. Uh, from Sixers Twitter. But we're both like, we remember this. We remember when this happened to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With that, we've mentioned the rookie scale thing quite a lot on this pod, guys. And uh, if you don't trust that you're going to be able to get a guy at pick six that's not going to end up in a similar situation to the one Josh Jackson is at the moment, trading back is not the worst idea, Max. No, it's really not. So uh, let's go with the, the last three of these. So Dinwiddie I have here. So number six in Josh. For Dinwiddie and 17, similar, except for you're getting Dinwiddie instead of Sabonis. Cole, what do you think? I would do that. I think Dinwiddie is a quality starter. I actually think he's better than D'Angelo Russell, frankly, especially in a playoff setting. So I would do that deal. I think he plays good enough defense. He can get to the rim. Not an ideal fit next to Booker, of course, with the lack of like high-level shooting off the ball. But again, you're trading back you know, 11 spots and getting Dinwiddie, who I do think is a starting caliber player in this league. And Josh is not, so I would do it. Yep, I would grade that one better than the Sabonis deal, Max, and uh, the quicker and easier that the Suns can fix this point guard problem, at least for the short term, uh, the better for me. So yeah, that one definitely ranks number one right now. Two more before we get into the absolute big ones. (laughs) So six, Josh, TJ Warren, and Tyler Johnson. For Kyle Lowry. Yes, I would do that too. I think Kyle Lowry still, I mean, he's he adds value to your team in ways that you can't really capture or most fans can't just because it's such like subtle contributions. And I think his leadership and how he approaches the game, if you get a chance, the, the listeners of the podcast, read Kevin Arnovitz's piece on him. It was like one of the best pieces I've read in the last two years. Um, it was awesome about his background and stuff. I think he would be a huge plus to the Suns. And of course, he's older, but I think you're trying to get you know, adults in the locker room. I don't know if you can do better than Kyle Lowry. Yeah, that moves to number one again for me. Uh, you and I have spoken about Lowry privately, Max, but yeah, I don't have too much more to add that Cole didn't already say on that one. I think, uh, you know, there was some stuff today from, I think, the low post pod about, you know, Kyle Lowry and, um, you know, someone like Chris Paul even, but the fact that Kyle's contract is so short and you can kind of get a stabilizing figure in there and and then maybe someone that you look to re-sign. I think that that is a no-brainer as well. All right, the last one, and I'm going to give you some context on this one. The New Orleans Pelicans have told the Los Angeles Clippers that they like their deal, but they really want somebody at six, right? Mm -hmm. So they really need that six pick also as part of the deal. So the Clippers asked the Suns, hey, if you give us number six and Josh Jackson, we'll give you mantras, heroin, Landry, Shamit. Cool. How quickly do you say yes? Uh, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is Max being the GM here, I think, with uh, two players that he loves. But uh, you get two positions of need there whilst getting rid of the sixth pick and, and 
you know, one year in, in, in Shamit and then a couple of years in for Harreld where you can kind of be a little bit more trustworthy on what they're going to be in the NBA. So uh, another one that I would happily do, Max. Yeah, that one was, that's a fantasy one for me. <laughs> uh, so let's get, let's get into the, the big ones here. So first one's going to be the one that actually a streaker and I negotiated uh, for AZ Sports Zone's mock draft thing that we're all part of. Mm-hmm. The Suns will trade. The number six pick, Suns Future First Protected, Lottery 2020, Top 10 2021, Unprotected 2022 in the Super Draft, Tyler Johnson, Josh Jackson, and DeAnthony Melton for Drew Holiday. What do you think, Cole? Ooh, that's tougher. Anytime we're dealing with a pick that lapses in an unprotected pick and you are a franchise that hasn't made the playoffs in nine years, that makes me stir a little bit more because, again, you're actually trading something of real value. Mm-hmm. Oh, what, what's Holiday's contract again? How many more years? I don't have it in front of me. I think it's three more years and it's all pretty good, right, David? Yeah, I think the last is a player option, though, that you need to be a little concerned about. Next year is 26. The year after that is 25. And the year after that, it's 26. Uh, but that's a player option. I'm going to let David take this one first. <laughs> got to think about it. <laughs> I know what David's going to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say yes. Uh, and I would really only make the point, and one that I've wanted to make on this podcast for a while, so thanks for giving me the opportunity here, Max, but at some point with this core, whether it's Booker, Aiton, Mikhail, uh, and maybe adding one other prospect if you can, so whether it's this deal or not, but at some point, we're going to have to be a lot less precious about getting rid of some of these first-round picks, either it's in a salary dump to bring in uh, more capable players right now, or you know just to make moves around this roster because at some point you got to kind of say yep I love this core now we've got to build around it and stop adding prospects to it so that'd be my only point other than to say yes I would happily add Drew Holiday to this roster Max all right Cole now you're up I'm actually gonna say no and for one simple reason I think if Drew Holiday was 24 25 I would do that in a heartbeat but he's turning 29 in June mm-hmm. what is the real likelihood that he contributes to the core of Booker I know we're trying to keep Booker so there's a lot of different things at play here right yeah I just think that if you deal a, a potential future unprotected pick if something happens and, and, and it goes down that way I, I just can't support that just from a foundational standpoint of how I view the league and team building so again if, if Drew is in his very prime and he's still ex- exceptionally good you're going to get great value I think over the next two years but when he really gets past his prime, that's when Aiton especially is going to be moving towards his. So I got to decline this one. So this is interesting. I want to linger on this just a little bit longer and see what you guys think about this. I think the differential and how people feel about this trade is sort of how you feel about the Booker, Aiton, Mikel trio. Yeah. I almost feel like if you don't make this trade or not, sorry, if, if you don't make a trade like that, are you, if you don't improve the team in a way like this, you're you're taking a real gamble on whether Booker, Aiton, and Mikel is going to work because if they have another season next season, like last season, uh, you're also you're already in dangerous territory. Booker might already be making plans to leave. Yeah. If you're making a trade like this, you're punting on that pick, and you're just praying that you know getting a stable guy in here will allow Booker, Aiton, and Mikel to develop properly. So I, I so Cole, correct me if I'm wrong by saying this. I almost feel like if you don't make this trade, you kind of want to keep your options open. You want to be able to have an out in case this doesn't work and you, you don't like give up the 2022 unprotected, for example, which you might need to rebuild after this. Yeah, I think that's kind of spot on. Like Again, I'm high on Booker. I really like Aiton. I love Mikhail in the role he's going to play, but I don't feel quite good enough that these guys are like legitimate difference makers. Like If I knew they're going to be top five players in the league, I would probably be more amenable to a deal like this because I know what I'm getting. I know what position it's going to put me in. I just... I can't risk that much a potential losing a potential pick of that value without more certainty. And there's no, you know, there's no certainty that Drew stays on long term. Maybe it, he turns around the organization in two years, and that really helps, and, and that fosters more development in the future. But I don't have enough intel. I don't have enough, you know, access mm-hmm. to to really answer that. You've nailed it on the head here, Max, with this example of kind of, I suppose. Uh, the mindset of a, a struggling uh, Phoenix Suns fan who wants to see this thing turned around and the culture reset uh, a little quicker versus, I guess, if I was wearing my other hat as 
uh, it's just a pure team building exercise. I think all of Cole's points um, are very well made and, and probably the smarter view than the irrational Suns fan right now. So uh, yeah, it, it's a really tricky one. I still lean yes, but as I said, Cole makes a hell of a lot of good points of why that could end up being a disastrous decision for the team as well. And also touches on something that Jones has touched on quite a bit with the age factor there of around who they target and I guess them fitting in with the current core and also being uh, effective when the current core is going to be in their prime. All right. So last one, and this one comes because I get asked by Suns fans constantly, how can the Suns get Lonzo Ball? (laughs) I'm asked that all the time. And so I try to figure out the most likely scenario where the Suns end up with Lonzo Ball and it's not very likely, but we're going to judge it anyway. Yep. (laughs) So... This requires a couple of things. It, it requires that the the Anthony Davis thing for the Lakers it becomes not it's not going to happen, and it requires that the Washington Wizards view the sixth pick as better than Lonzo Ball. So this would end up being Washington gets the number six pick, Josh Jackson, the number four pick from the Lakers, and Brandon Ingram. The Lakers get Bradley Beal, and the Suns get. Lonzo Ball. So I guess we'll start with the Suns' perspective, and you can go to all the teams if you want, Cole. Would you do that as the Suns and the rest of the team? So basically, Phoenix is giving up Josh Jackson and six for Lonzo? Correct. Yes, I would do that. I, I think that I still believe in Lonzo as far as his decision-making. I think all he has to do is shoot, and that's like a huge fucking question, of course. Like, if I knew he was going to shoot this bad, I probably wouldn't have been as high on him. Mm-hmm. But the guy's a brilliant basketball player, and I think playing off Booker, I think he could just really add value in subtle ways to a team. I'm viewing Josh, again, as more of like a sunk cost almost right now, unless he starts really elevating. And I like Lonzo more than anybody I like at number six in this draft. So that's kind of my rationale. I would do it if I was Phoenix. Yep, and it's the complete reverse of the previous deal, Max, where... Uh, the cost and also, I guess, the age profile and the type of player that Lonzo is. You can still get this team on the right track with a guy that's been in the league for a couple of seasons and you don't have to wait on too much uh, whilst not giving up future first that were in the Drew Holiday deal. So there's no reason uh, why I wouldn't sign on the dotted line for that one. And I think it's kind of a good deal for all the teams involved there, Max. So uh, we should uh, get that one done. Well, thank you. I came with it all by myself. Uh, last <laughs> thing on the Lonzo Ball point, I find Lonzo Ball absolutely fascinating. I'm going to put you both in the spot here, but I'm going to start with Cole. So Lonzo Ball was so interesting to me because when we were evaluating him, uh, you know, when we were evaluating 2017 draft, we thought he was going to be like a really good shooter and somebody who couldn't play defense. Mm-hmm. And then he turned into a guy who can't shoot and is an excellent effing defender. So what has that told you, Cole? Like going, what lessons have you learned from Lonzo, if any, about like how you can scout? Is this just a total random aberration that doesn't teach you anything? It just it just happened, or is this something we can learn from? I guess just to be completely honest, I actually was higher on his defense and lower on his shooting, so I kind of saw that. I did mm. not see the shooting do this extreme, though. I'm not going to give myself that kind of credit. Humble brag, <laughs> very humble brag. Humble brag. <laughs> well, I wrote a I wrote a piece about his team defense before the draft, and I, I thought you know all the Kentucky shit was completely overblown about De'Aaron Fox killing him in pick and roll. Like Lonzo wasn't even guarding him for mm-hmm. a lot of that, and it was yep. a lot of pick and roll defense is coverage. It's about defensive positioning for the big guarding the screen, all of that. You guys know that shit. So yep. I, I think that all that was over blown i did not expect lonzo to be this bad of a shooter and lose his confidence that's the number one thing is i thought he really struggled with confidence over the last couple of years and it's a it's kind of a bummer i didn't expect his defense to be this level because he's gotten a lot stronger he's much better on the ball but i do think to your overarching question about how we approach the draft and what can we learn i think this goes to cutting the bullshit and don't believe the narratives that you hear because that was a primary narrative pre-draft was that mm-hmm. Lonzo can't play defense he because De'Aaron Fox killed him and that's that wasn't true. Yep, I, I've learned two very minor things from my thoughts on Lonzo Ball as a prospect, Max, and uh, it's on both sides of the ball. I think I'd echo what Cole said. I think the shooting is a lot worse than I hoped and expected it to be and I think, uh, you know, I've spoken a lot in the last season around kind of fit and situation. And I think that's a large part to what has happened there to to Lonzo. And he's just completely lost confidence, which is kind of all part of that point as well. So uh, that's an interesting thing and and makes it a questionable fit on the Suns, I suppose. And I was a little lower on his defense, um, kind of noting that he had a really kind of slow turning circle. And I thought that that might hurt him in pick and roll and things. But, you know, again, going back to the very start of this podcast, I think 
he's a perfect example of where IQ and being a smart basketball player with just a great feel can uh, overcome some of those athletic things sometimes. And he just gets to spots quicker because he's thinking quicker than a lot of guys on the court. One quick point about the fit on the Suns. I like the fit for several reasons. I think that getting his ball movement, that's something that's underrated with Kyle Lowry, the way he swings the ball and makes quick reads. That's really valuable on a team. Yes. I do think, though, if you bring Lonzo in, you build around Booker, McHale, and Aiton, Mm -hmm. you still probably need one more perimeter creator who can create a shot because that's Lonzo's weakness. That's always been his weakness. One-on-one play, his ball handling, he's very, he he doesn't have any kind of shake or shift. He's more of just a guy who fills in the gaps. Mm -hmm. So I still think you're facing a similar problem. Like he's, of course, more he's better with the ball than like a D'Anthony Melton, for example. But he's not going to like score, you know, twenty points a game. He's not going to create a shot in ISO. I still think you need that one guy at the four, which of course is why I've been advocating for Zion for so long. But <laughs> you just need so you just need somebody like that. You, not like Zion, of course, nobody like that. But you need somebody else on the perimeter that can get a shot. I still think there's limitations with Lonzo on the team. Yeah, no doubt. And the, the last thing I want to say, and then we'll move on, is I think the, the, the number one thing Lonzo taught me, and it, it's almost embarrassing to admit this because it shows you kind of how narrow minded I was. Before is I, I thought Lonzo was a bad defender because I watched him get blown by and stuff like that all the time. Mm-hmm. Really, for some reason, we evaluate offense. Everyone evaluates offense yeah, in a nuanced way. They, they evaluate, I can shoot, I can drive, all sorts of different skills. And then they'll go to the defense and be like, oh, he's a good defender or a bad defender. And that's it. It's like there are different you know aspects to defending as well. <laughs> and I think that Lonzo is the, is the number one guy who's shown me that really, really clearly is that you know, Lonzo, yeah, still not a good necessarily point of attack defender, but he's such a freaking good team defender that he's just so useful on that end. And a lot of it came to his intelligence and his, and his length. And so that's the number one thing I learned from him, which I probably should have already known, so it's kind of embarrassing to admit. <laughs> As expected, we just had too much to talk about with Cole for one episode, so we're going to turn this into a two-parter. Not sure exactly when you'll get the next episode. I think it'll probably be about a week after we publish this episode. We're going to continue talking about the draft for the Suns, and then we're also going to get into a little bit of how the draft will affect the Suns' team building going forward. Uh, And then Cole's going to give a couple of his opinions on Phoenix Suns players. So that's going to be a great episode. Watch out for that. Um, But as always, for now, please rate, review, and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Thank you.